Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World podcast. My name is Philip Gooding. For this podcast, I'm thrilled to be joined by Professor Jeremy Prestolt. Professor Prestolt is a professor of history at the University of California, San Diego. He's the author of two major monographs. The first is entitled Domesticating the World, African Consumerism and the Genealogies of Globalization, which was published in 2008 with the University of California Press. The second is Icons of Descent, The Global Resonance of Che, Mali, Tupac and Bin Laden, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2019. Professor Prestolt is also the co-editor-in-chief of Monsoon, Journal of the Indian Ocean Rim, which is a new journal focusing on the study of the Indian Ocean published by Duke University Press in conjunction with the Africa Institute in Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates. In this podcast, we will be discussing this important venue for the study of the Indian Ocean world, as well as Professor Prestolt's career, which has led him to his new editorial role. Professor Prestolt, thank you very much for agreeing to this podcast. I just want to start off by asking you about the um, about your new journal. Could you tell us more about the origins and aims of Monsoon? Um, how did your collaboration with your co-editors, notably um, Rugai Abusharaf at Georgetown, how did that collaboration come about? And how did you get involved with the African Institute in Sharjah? And what collectively do you hope to achieve with the founding of Monsoon? Well, thank you very much. Thanks for this invitation. Uh, and thanks for producing this fantastic podcast series. It's my pleasure to speak with you today. Uh, let me just start by saying a word about Monsoon. It's a biannual, peer-reviewed, and interdisciplinary journal focused on Indian Ocean studies, but with a particular emphasis on Africa and the Western Indian Ocean. So Rogaya Abusharaf, my co-editor, conceived of the journal sometime back. Um, at Georgetown uh, Cotter, she founded the Indian Ocean Working Group. Uh, and with colleagues developed a number of important conferences that uh, that perhaps listeners are familiar with or in, in fact were part of, uh, symposia, edited volumes, uh, and actually the recent special collection, Thinking with the Indian Ocean in Comparative Studies of South Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. So she and I worked on a number of things together, but more importantly, Rogaya and Salah Hassan, who's the director of the Africa Institute spoke about the prospect of a journal, uh, and he was very keen to support the project. So it was really Rogaya's vision, Salah, and the Africa Institute that set things in motion. Now, Rogaya and I carried this conversation about the journal further with uh, Salah and the Africa Institute, and this really was the opportunity of a lifetime. And I feel very fortunate to have had the chance to work with Rogaya, Salah, and the team at uh, the Africa Institute, uh, especially uh, Sultan Al-Hassan, who manages the editorial process. So I think another thing that's uh, important to recognize is that this is an African studies institution, the Africa Institute, based within the greater Indian Ocean region. And that's the permanent home for the journal. I think that's a you know an important uh, aspect of the journal and the project. And the Africa Institute has been incredibly generous, offering the support necessary for us to bring the project to fruition. Um, and when we pitched it to Duke, uh, they were very excited right from the beginning. And so uh, Duke has been an ideal partner for the journal. Uh, now you asked about, uh, about AIMS, so let me just give you a kind of overview. 
in sum, Monsoon aims to present the greatest possible range of new research across the disciplines. We generally have uh, six to eight research articles, but we also feature art, including, including visual art, poetry, hopefully fiction uh, as well. And we provide a space for conversations and interviews with scholars, with artists, uh, practitioners. Uh, and then although the issues to date haven't featured re review essays or, or book reviews, we will do that as well and hopefully film reviews and, um, uh, and other aspects. Uh, that we haven't seen in issue one or forthcoming issue two. So the idea is to, again, provide this very broad platform for Indian Ocean studies. As editors, we really want to raise the profile of Indian Ocean studies and include as many voices as we, you know, as we possibly can. And we also want to bring Indian Ocean studies and research on the Indian Ocean region to the widest possible audience. This is our vision, this is the Africa Institute's vision. We wanna highlight emerging trends in Indian Ocean studies in conversations with institutions such as the Indian Ocean World Center. Um, I think, you know, Indi Indian Ocean Africa and Indian Ocean generally has just not received the scholarly attention that it deserves. And this is very much part of the Africa Institute's investment uh, in this journal. And of course, Rogaya and, and my interests in launching this journal. So we join um, other journals, such as the Journal of Indian Ocean World Studies uh, and a great many scholars who have taken up this challenge to center Africa and the Indian Ocean. I'll say one other thing about our model. One of the things that we've really tried to emphasize is collaboration. And part of that collaboration is uh, special issues. So we have a number of special issues in the works uh, related to uh, symposia that we've uh, sponsored, uh, as well as you know other themes that are, um, uh, I think, important for the wider Indian Ocean region. So special issues are very much a part of our, um, our vision. And like I said, particularly in terms of collaboration, so I just want to say one more thing uh, about the Africa Institute's vision and our vision in terms of the journal. And that's that the Africa Institute has devoted a year-long series of events to this theme of Africa's Indian Ocean Islands. Uh, they have uh, uh, a season called a country-focused season, but it's a, a season, a year-long uh, programming calendar um, that often has uh, conferences in the nation that's been that's the focus of that season. They did something very different for this year. And this year, the focus on Africa's Indian Ocean Islands uh, takes it sort of out of a national realm to consider the critical role of Africa's Indian Ocean Islands, uh, not just in regional interfaces in Indian Ocean region and uh, Eastern Africa, but also global interfaces. So uh, we had an event as part of this year-long series in Sharjah, uh, one in Zanzibar, uh, an upcoming uh, third event in Sharjah, and then a fourth event in Mauritius. So uh, the African Institute has supported us uh, in that way as well and helped us develop some of the themes that, uh, that Monsoon is interested uh, to address moving forward. So this has included me, uh, Rogaya, 
Uday Chandra, who's also at uh, Georgetown Qatar, Satana Hassan and the AI team. You know, we've all sort of organized these thematic conferences. Uh, and so if people are interested, you can check out the links on the Africa Institute website for this season. And I bring this up because not only can you kind of get a sense of the, the themes of each conference, but I believe for the last two conferences, the full conferences are online. So one can, um, you know, can, can watch all of the panels. So uh, finally, we've worked with co-conveners as well. So for instance, the upcoming conference on art and culture, which will be in December in Sharjah, uh, we co-convened with Laura Fair and Rita Meyer. It's a fantastic event. Uh, and hopefully, you know, again, a, a special issue on the themes of the conference will come out of that. And we're also working with uh, Sarah Jappi and uh, SSRC's Trans Regional Collaboratory on the Indian Ocean on the theme of intertwined ecologies, which will be the focus of the conference next year uh, in Mauritius. So June 2024 in Mauritius. Thank you very much for telling us about this. One of the things I wanted to ask you more about, and it relates to your research as well, um, is this kind of focus of the Africa Institute with the focus on the Africa's Indian Ocean Islands in, in, in the current series of symposia, and also this idea of centering Africa in the Indian Ocean world as well. Now, uh, as you and I think most listeners will know, I think Africa was neglected uh, in the early studies focusing on the Indian Ocean world. And I think it's true also to say that most Africanist scholars, and I think this might be changing now, um, have been slow to engage with wider Indian Ocean studies or Indian Ocean world studies, um, except perhaps those who focus on the Swahili coast. Um, so I wondered if you could speak to, I suppose, not just from the perspective of monsoon, but also from the perspective of your research. How are Africanist perspectives important to Indian Ocean world studies and vice versa? How is the Indian Ocean important to understanding Indian Ocean Africa or Eastern Africa moving forwards? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And um, certainly monsoon aims to correct this. I mean, it, it aims to be a corrective to this question that you raise. And you're absolutely right that my work moves in a very similar direction. Um, my work has emphasized African influences well beyond the continent. And that's, you know, absolutely in an in a Indian Ocean context, but not solely in Indian Ocean context. But I think the relevance of Indian Ocean studies to the wider Eastern African region has really only grown with time. And I think that has to do, again, with the way in which the boundaries, the way in which the um, uh, the interfaces of the of the Indian Ocean Rim and neighboring societies, as well as, you know, as more distant societies have shifted over time. And as I argue, in some of my more recent work have, have become even more important for both. So, you know, obviously, climatic, environmental, Questions are critical, they transcend the coast, but economic, cultural, social, well, and political linkages between the coast and the interior have also deepened substantially um, over the last few centuries, especially since the 19th century. So I guess my simple point here is societies of the Indian Ocean have become more enmeshed with their continental neighbors um, in, in recent centuries. And that, you know, you can look at from a lot of perspectives, you know, religion, economy, uh, you know, the influence of 
of Islam in particular, uh, economic influences of the coast, you know, that clearly was a story of the 19th century. Uh, Swahili language. I mean, you know, if you're looking at East Africa, the influence of Swahili across the broader region um, has grown exponentially, you know, and as a language that was, that has its origins, you know, squarely on the coast of East Africa, uh, I think that's an important fact that everyone knows, but is, I think, the mechanics of which are important to understand in terms of this enmeshing, this deeper imbrication, let's say, of the coast uh, of the Indian Ocean world and um, societies of the broader East African region. And also fashion. I mean, uh, one of the things that I've always found really interesting and I've written about in a lot of different contexts is the ways in which the sartorial cultures, sartorial trends of the coast have influences that go well beyond and vice versa, I should say. I think that receives even less attention. But um, these imbrications have all kinds of, you know, cultural ramifications too. Um, and I think that that actually accelerates dramatically in the 20th century, at least in the first half of the 20th century. So I guess the short answer to, to your, your, your question is, from my perspective, you know, the relationship, again, between the, the, the Indian Ocean Rim and societies of Eastern Africa more broadly has only become more intense over time. And thus, I think many of these questions of relevance for the Indian Ocean, they go beyond economy. I mean, obviously, economic connections also intensified across the region. I think that, you know, in, in Indian Ocean perspective, uh, as well as um, uh, global perspective, I think can can help us to understand, again, like East Africa's broader global connections, um, not just in the 18th century, 19th century, but also in the 20th century and down to the present. Wonderful. You're absolutely preaching to the choir here. <laughs> I certainly agree with everything you've said there. So, But I want to want to ask you something about this. You mentioned right at the end from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries and this deeper enmeshing over time. And I wondered, um, and this kind of, this kind of 250 year period kind of encapsulates the time periods that you've been interested in uh, with your publications. And I wonder if you could speak to the nature of the Indian Ocean as, I suppose, as a world um, or as a concept um, in this time. And now um, listeners will know, for example, that the regions around the, in the idea that the regions around the Indian Ocean um, comprise a distinct world. I think originates with an interpretation of Fernand Braudel's contributions to world history via study of the Mediterranean world, certainly that was influential on scholars such as Chowdhury and Pearson later on. I wonder, does this conception still hold up in analyses of the more recent past, particularly in the context of post-colonial or post-Cold War politics? Or put another way, thinking about the late 18th century, then the 19th century, and then to now, do the regions around the Indian Ocean still constitute a world? Or how might this conceptualization be modified to fit um, present geopolitical realities? Yeah, that's another fantastic question. And in fact, this is one that I grapple with in two pieces um, that I'll just mention before getting into to, to some of the details. One is a piece I, I published in, in 2015, locating the Indian Ocean. Um, and then as a kind of follow-up to that, I wrote another piece it came out in 2020, the ends of the Indian Ocean. Both of those basically grapple with this 
question. Um, I mean, your question is obviously much more focused on the, um, you know, the post-colonial period, 20th century into the you know, 21st century. Um, but in that piece, the ends of the Indian Ocean, I sort of take a longer view too. And maybe I'll circle back to, to, to some of what I tried to sort of dig into in that, in that second piece that takes a, a broader time span. But I think, you know, the most direct answer I can give to your question is a qualified yes. There very much, <laughs> there very much is a contemporary Indian Ocean world. But this is a qualification is that, you know, you know, this isn't just a heuristic device. It's not just a historical model. It's not just a climatic zone. I think there is a contemporary Indian Ocean world because it has meaning to those along its shores. Now, this isn't about quantification. This is about um, what meaning the concept of the Indian Ocean holds and what the reverberations of that are. This is not to deny, obviously, the deep history of imbrication. But my caveat here is that I think in the present, what we're talking about is the Indian Ocean world that only partly relates to how we have historically defined the Indian Ocean world. And I think that's a critical distinction. So it's hard for us as historians to define the recent past using the earlier historical categories that we've employed. For instance, you know, the port city. Port cities just don't play the same role as they did in the 19th century. You know, as a historian who focuses primarily, uh, at least my first book focused primarily on, you know, the 19th century. Yes, I mean, port cities just do not play the same social role that they once did. So the means and routes of connectivity have shifted. That's one of my first points, I think, um, is that means and routes of connectivity constantly shift. And so what we're talking about in the present is therefore a very different world in terms of means and routes of connectivity. But here's another thing that I have done some work on, but I'd really like to write more about. I think just as importantly, colonial and post-colonial states developed a political paradigm that for most coastal locales, at least the places that I'm more familiar with, like um, the East African coast, this new political paradigm affected the orientation of people's imaginations. I mean, yes, it affected their political lives, um, for instance, in, in terms of um, uh, a sort of new political regime. I mean, a new political regime in both contexts, but in one in which people could participate in the post-colonial period. That obviously affects people's imaginations or, you know, as I said, orientation in terms of the politics of possibility and so forth. But <laughs> I think it's important to at the same time recognize that people across the region are perhaps now more interfaced than ever before. And I think the linkages of the recent past have reanimated the concept of an Indian Ocean world. This was sort of my core insight in locating the Indian Ocean is that we've seen the reanimation of a concept of the Indian Ocean. And that's really important. I, I use this, uh, this term basin consciousness to try to uh, capture this, uh, this concept of the Indian Ocean world or um, imagination. But basically what basin consciousness, basin consciousness does is, what I'm trying to speak to, I should say, is an identification with the ocean. 
right, is a identification on the part of states, identification on the part of individuals, and identification on the part of movements or political groups with the broader Indian Ocean region. So we can see this in so many ways, uh, in heritage, uh, you know, emphasis on conservation, emphasis on revived transoceanic trans links, emphasis on uh, transregional organizations. Now we're talking about the level of the state. But alternatively, we also see it in separatist movements. This is something that I look at in my own work across time uh, in coastal Kenya from you know, the 1950, the very end of the 1950s to the present. So actually post-colonial grievances have seen a turn to the Indian Ocean in some context as this alternative political lever. And that's what I've argued in some contexts in, you know, on the Kenyan coast. But there's something else that's happening here that's so fascinating to me that is somewhat of a departure in the post-Cold War era. And that's that states have also drawn on Indian Ocean linkages, both past and present, as elements of national identity. Um, and this plays into diplomacy and you know, political relationships, international relations. So states have begun to embrace the idea of the Indian Ocean as a concept, as a diplomatic lever. Um, this is something that, again, that, that piece uh, located in the Indian Ocean I just touch on. I don't do it justice, but I think we can see this in Oman. We can see this in Zanzibar. We can see this in Mauritius. We can see this kind of, quote unquote, return to history. I think there's a really important discursive thread here that is not necessarily tied to sort of tangible transoceanic travels uh, or linkages in the way that we might have thought about those in the 18th century, for instance. Um, but this discursive thread that states have picked up also, as I said, appeals to separatists because it's a very powerful thread. It links the past with the present as a means of imagining the future. And I think that's why, in some ways, the concept of the Indian Ocean has become I argue in that piece, locating the Indian Ocean, probably more important now than at any time in the last you know, several decades. So we've seen this constant reimagination of connectivity, say over time, you know, of course that that's true across um, you know, centuries. But this reimagination of connectivity means I think we also should pay attention to how people imagine the Indian Ocean as a space of possibility. Um, and for readers, um, for, for listeners, sorry, I urge you to uh, locate that piece, uh, locating the Indian Ocean. We'll put a link in the podcast link as well. But in case you just want to follow it um, kind of uh, manually, it's in volume nine, issue three of the Journal of Eastern African Studies. And yeah, it's a really wonderful piece. And I want to turn to another of your um, pieces. Um, in fact, I think might even be mo your most recent piece. Um, published um, in this year's or the most recent issue of the Comparative Studies of South Asia, Africa and the Middle East, uh, which is entitled Global Currents and the Transformation of Space in Indian Ocean Africa. Um, and this is, to my mind, at least a very important piece based on a synthesis of research that enables to think about multiple, sp multiple spatial scales, think about the intersection of African, Indian Ocean and global history and how those intersect. I suppose I just want to ask you a kind of very broad question to start off with. What did you aim to achieve um, with this piece? Uh, and what do you hope that readers will take away from it, having read it? 
Yeah, thanks very much for um, for that question and for yeah, I mean for recognizing exactly what that what that piece is trying to to grapple with. And I mean, in some ways, it's a return to questions that drove my first book, Domesticating the World: African Consumerism and the Genealogies of Globalization, but which I felt. <laughs> In retrospect, I never really took on directly. You know, I mean, I think this is a experience of, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of researchers that, you know, you you have all these questions in mind, and you dig deep into those questions, but you don't always articulate. Uh, uh, or at least my feeling is, I often don't articulate the questions as well as I should have when, <laughs> in the end product. You know, I think some people, you know, did this very well, sort of lay out that these are the kind of uh, questions that, that that drove the research and, and and this is how we got there. And I, I don't think I ever really uh, provided that kind of roadmap in a way that would have been uh, satisfactory for my dissertation research and ultimately first book. So all that is to say, that, you know, that it's a bit of background to how this article took shape. Um, as you say, I mean, it really grapples with how we think about the relationship of Indian Ocean history to global history, which was a core question of my first book and my dissertation research. Um, how we think about the relationship of East Africa to the wider Indian Ocean, how we think about the relationship of East Africa to wider global history. Now, I should say that, you know, when we're talking about Indian Ocean history and global history, it's important to recognize the different approaches. On the one hand, global history focuses on connections, right? For the most part, that this is where the field has, has, has moved towards, uh, focusing on connections across trans-regional space. Indian Ocean Studies does that too, of course, but Indian Ocean Studies has a center of gravity, and that's the sea itself, right? That's a pretty substantive, you know, and a pretty substantial difference in terms of conceptualization. The question that was in the back of my mind in writing Domesticating the World and still is in the back of my mind is how do we narrate regional histories that stretch beyond the Indian Ocean? And that's the question that this piece is trying to uh, address. I don't do it thoroughly by any means, <laughs> um, but it's certainly uh, something that I think deserves more attention. And one of the things that 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 actually the three pieces that I've mentioned thus far all address is the fact that metageographical concepts just by definition have a degree of fiction, right? Whether they're continents, whether they're oceans, you know, whether they're, um, you know, regions, they have this degree of fiction that is, um, you know, again, about conceiving space. But the reality is, of course, spatial concepts incessantly change. Now, as I you know, mentioned a moment ago, at the same time, geographical concepts have real world meaning and not just in academia. So while you know, a lot of my work has focused on the articulation of African societies with the wider Indian Ocean world, um, I think if we zoom out, we can also appreciate the relationship of those same Indian Ocean networks to global currents. And what I try to show in this piece, uh, uh, the global currents piece, is that these categories are often overlapping and intertwined. The categories of that we 
tend to use global history, um, Indian Ocean, world history. These are very much intertwined and overlapping. Um, and that has a number of consequences, I think. That's, that's, that's one of the first points. So in the piece, I reference scholars who have done really excellent work on the, you might say on the margins of the ocean, you know, as it's conceived, right? Connections with the Mediterranean, connections with the Pacific, connections with the Atlantic as other, you know, major oceanic fields. And I think all of that work illuminates how societies on these margins or in some relation to those margins have been deeply integrated with other regions as well. And this is precisely what I try to capture with the term dual articulation. Um, I use this term in the piece for lack of a better term, <laughs> um, because what I'm trying to capture is this simultaneous interrelation of Indian Ocean spaces with places well beyond the rim. Let me let me clarify that. What I mean is like the simultaneous connection within the Indian Ocean region among locales, nodes within the region, but also their connection with places well beyond. So of course, this is something I, I looked at in relation to um, you know, consumer culture in the 19th century in my first book. But of course, one could look at this question from many, many different vantage points. And again, these are these connections are transcontinental, transoceanic, and shifting. And I think both Indian Ocean studies and global history reveal the contingent and again shifting particular connections between specific places, specific port cities, specific communities, uh, specific societies. And I use this term in that piece, interface profile, as an attempt to kind of focus on the locus of that dual articulation. So that's another contribution of the piece that I think when we're looking at the Indian Ocean, oftentimes what we're looking, what we're actually researching, what we're focusing on is essentially that interface profile. That certainly was the case for me when looking at Zanzibar or Mombasa. You're looking at these connections that have great relevance for those places and vice versa. Um, the way in which, um, you know, as I argued in Domesticating the World, East Africa had demands in East Africa had all these global reverberations, the, um, you know, emerging uh, trends in Zanzibar had these global reverberations. So, again, the interface profile, I think, is constantly changing, but it gives you a kind of lens to understand what these relationships entailed. Relationships that, again, are both Indian Ocean centered, you know, with other places uh, in the Indian Ocean region, but also, you know, transcended the region. So, again, I try to capture this with the term dual articulation. And I think this is kind of a core element of so much of the work I've done, even though many of these connections that I've you know, focused on are Indian Ocean or with the other Indian Ocean societies, of course, they also reach well beyond. So recognizing that duality is, I think, really important for, um, for not just historical work, but you know, for contemporary research as well.
Wonderful. Then I want to ask you one more question related to this piece and to your to your wider research and related to something that you mentioned about the multiple or the many vantage points with which to conceive these linkages. Mm-hmm. Um, that your the piece itself focuses on slave trades and the exchange of material objects. Um, and this builds on kind of a large historiography on slave trade, slavery and bondage in the ocean world, as well as on your own research, particularly as you mentioned, um, domesticating the world. I suppose the question then is where do we go from here? What are the other vantage points with which we can, that you see as being particularly productive um, for thinking about um, the dual articulation um, of space and, and historical themes between, um, I suppose, the, the ostensibly regional or local, the macro regional uh, and the global. Um, and are there any particular works that inspire you in that context? Certainly one of the, one of the questions that I that I think um, is really interesting is about the immaterial. Of course, you know my work has has focused on you know as you said, so the circulation of of textiles, for instance, of of uh, physical commodities. That was the primary focus of domesticating the world. But I think there there are very interesting ways in which the circulation of ideas has a has a really important role, I think, in understanding what the Indian Ocean means. This is just to go back to one of my earlier points, what the Indian Ocean means in terms of the concept of the region. But also I think that, you know, these ideas of interconnection have real uh, uh, tangible uh, reverberations. I mean, I should back up and say my, uh, my second book, Icons of Descent, kind of uh, trying to address that basic question, like how how do immaterial things circulate? I mean, ultimately the book kind of tried to, uh, tried to, tried to bind these, both the immaterial and material, like the way in which iconic figures are materialized, commodified, you know, made into objects that are saleable and circulate. Uh, and I realized that was actually a much more important part of the story than I had realized going into the project. And I do look at circulations of, you know, uh, of images and ideas within the Indian Ocean region in that book too. But I think wedding the immaterial and the material is one important place to start. You know, again, this isn't sort of unique to my own research. A lot of people have have, have worked on on these questions of circulation, especially of like, you know, religious praxis and, and so forth, um, religious texts uh, or texts more generally. Uh, and I think that those, uh, all of these, these sort of avenues of research can bring us to, you know, slightly different uh, conclusions, slightly different interface profiles. You know, one of the things that I, that I take from looking at both um, the immaterial and the material, you know, the movement of, of people, enslaved people, um, people that uh, that uh, you know migrated willfully as well. Uh, the movement of people across the ocean, both permanently and you know and temporarily, in addition to the movement of uh, of commodities, uh, of objects and ideas, is that to go back to your earlier question, um, you know these boundaries between sort of the Indian Ocean, Indian Ocean circulations and broader 
global or continental circulations have always been in flux and, and fleeting. I mean, I think one really interesting thing to, I know that now I'm getting off the subject, but I think one really interesting thing to recognize in looking at the broader span of Indian Ocean history is Indian Ocean networks have expanded and retracted quite dramatically over time. Um, this is why I think it's really important to recognize, you know, the, the historical shifts of, of particular moments, like, you know, the, the the expansion of, in many ways, an Indian Ocean society at the Western Cape, um, you know, from the 17th century forward. I argue, you know, in that piece that, that this is a pretty dramatic expansion of Indian Ocean networks and Indian Ocean societies into uh, a region that had not been integrated with the wider Indian Ocean world, you know, and we can see a lot of examples of that actually, you know, over time. Uh, I mean, I, I think about this in terms of, you know, Swahili speaking communities as well. I mean, you look at the, the expanse of Swahili speaking towns all the way down to, you know, Sofala and beyond in the, in the 15th, 16th century. And the way in which you know many of those those networks were broken and retracted as a result of uh, Portuguese colonialism and Portuguese attempts, more precisely, to 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 take control of the the gold trade. Um, and so you have Swahili communities on the Zambezi and you know uh, throughout throughout what was then the southern Swahili coast, really sort of losing losing their position, losing losing foothold. And that created a very different matrix of uh, of Indian Ocean uh, connectivity. Uh, again, you know, you look at the Cape and the way in which enslaved people from across the right across the Indian Ocean region, from um, Madagascar, Southeast Africa, to you know uh, South Asia and Southeast Asia, were brought to the Cape and created an entirely new society that had very strong, you know, Indian Ocean. Uh, influences, Bougainese, Malay, uh, Malagasy, you know, these languages were, were all spoken uh, at the Cape, the expansion of Islam at the Cape, you know, in the in the early modern period. You know, this is really about, again, a sort of expansion of Indian Ocean societies uh, in, in new ways. And I think that that kind of what I call restlessness of Indian Ocean space um, you know, the movement of people both by force and, uh, as I said before, you know, willfully has created a very fluid historical map of how you understand Indian Ocean societies or an Indian Ocean world. Again, I think we're talking about in interface profiles in the Indian Ocean region. Um, and really, from an academic perspective, geography need not be so critical to that definition, again, because it's the sort of the relationship between places that really matter. The relationship between Batavia and Cape Town was much more critical than, you know, the relationship between Cape Town and perhaps more geographically proximate places in the Indian Ocean region, for instance. So anyway, I think it's important to define the Indian Ocean along the lines of those networks of connectivity, those those spaces of relation. And I think, again, like one can do that in so many different ways across different moments of time. Wonderful. Thanks very much. Um, I want to ask you one final question. 
Uh, and it's a very simple one. Um, what are you working on now? Um, and I suppose that that's, you can answer that in relation to your research uh, and or um, in relation to Monsoon and in collaboration with the Africa Institute. Well, it's funny, as you were, uh, uh, as you're asking that question, I was, <laughs> I was just thinking about, uh, in the back of my mind, uh, as I was talking a moment ago, it was the research that I'm currently doing, um, but <laughs> I didn't want to dive too deep into it. So I'm working on a project now that actually addresses so much of what we've just spoken about. Um, and the project tentatively is called Clothing Empires, Indian Ocean, Africa, Japan, and Colonial Capitalism, uh, roughly running from 1920 uh, to the post-colonial period, to at least the 1960s and, and, um, and perhaps a bit later. Well, this project actually follows the core theme of domesticating the world, but it follows that theme into the later 20th century. And the theme of Indian Ocean consumer cultures and African agency in shaping global economic linkages is again one that I'm returning to here. And this project takes as its starting point something that I was not aware of while doing research for domesticating the world. The largely forgotten fact that in the years before and actually immediately following the Second World War as well, people across East Africa dressed in Japanese made apparel and locally tailored clothing made from Japanese fabrics. In fact, Japanese cotton goods outpaced most other imports already by the early 1920s, and particularly in these categories of imports that were the most important for the broader Eastern Africa region. That is to say, unbleached or bleached cotton goods. So this was a really, really important relationship between Eastern Africa, between the Western Indian Ocean generally, and Japan that took really unprecedented form by the mid-1920s. What I argue uh, in, the, in the bits that I've written thus far is that Indian Ocean Africa became this kind of theater in a global inter-empire battle for consumer culture markets. But the story, of course, is much, much broader than that. So a number of things happened concurrently from the 1920s, uh, well, especially in the 1920s, 1930s, and then again in the 1950s. And that's that Japanese textile manufacturers appealed to African consumers directly. At the same time, British policymakers sought to limit Africans' consumer choices. And ultimately, what I think is perhaps most important is that East African consumers, through their uh, uh, choices, you know, of, of of clothing and textiles, whether it be ready-made or tailored locally, ultimately affected both colonial governance and patterns of Japanese industrialization, which is really fascinating. I mean, the degree to which the textile varieties that were being produced for East African markets, as well as other markets, as well as markets in Southeast Asia and South Asia you know, were very, very uh, specialized. These were things like Conga in East Africa that were designed for very specific regional markets. So the project basically revolves around three, three questions. One, why did Japanese imports appeal to East African consumers in the first place? And that takes us to the question of sartorial trends and, and, and shifting cultural trends, as well as social trends in East Africa, not just at the coast, but right through the whole 
uh, region. I mean, my focus is really British East Africa, but uh, and in particular, uh, uh, Tanganyika and, and Kenya, as well as Zanzibar. But actually, what I'm sort of narrating uh, is a story of the whole region. I mean, in, including Ethiopia, including, um, you know, the broader Horn of Africa, uh, including Eastern Congo, uh, including Uganda. So the second question is, how did East Africans transform these cotton goods to meet regional tastes? And this is something that I only really touch on briefly for the 19th century in domesticating the world. And this is this question of what happens to consumer goods when they're imported. And what happens in the 19th century isn't exactly the same what happens in the 20th century. In the, in the 20th century, most of these Japanese cotton goods that are being imported, most of them fall under this category of metakani, which harkens back to you know the American produced um, bleached or un, unbleached cloth that was uh, primarily unbleached cloth that was imported into um, the broad, broader East African region. Um, what happens to this? Well, most of it in the 20th century is actually tailored. It's tailored into dresses. It's tailored into suits. It's tailored into shirts and pants. It's tailored into kanzu. It's uh, it, it tailored into a variety of, 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 of clothing styles that are not no longer just popular in the coast, but popular throughout the region. And Western style clothes. So Japanese are producing Western style clothes ready-made for African markets, but also, again, the textiles are being tailored locally. And I think that's a whole nother element of this articulation of African economies and sartorial cultures with the global economy, because so much of the labor, so much of the value adding is actually happening in East Africa. And, you know, especially in places like Nairobi, uh, Dar es Salaam, Zanzibar, Mombasa. And the third question that the project's trying to ask is, we're trying to address is, how did state institutions from Japanese prefectural governments to Whitehall to regional colonial administrators uh, and administrations, how did they all perceive East African consumer choices? And ultimately, from the uh, you know from the perspective of policymakers, um, both in the UK and on the ground in East Africa, how did they attempt to shape them? Because this is where a lot of the archival material lies in how policymakers, imperial policymakers, tried to basically affect the consumer choices of Africans, of East Africans in this case. Um, and ultimately this leads to the banning, oh, not sorry, not the banning, but you know, high, high tariffs on Japanese imports, but that um, is only rather late um, in, the, in the 1930s. So to answer these questions, what I try to do is look at, as I said, changing consumer cultures across yeah, Eastern Africa, but also Japanese industrial production for regional markets, which is another really, really important story. And it's a story that's a bit of a departure from what we see happening with other imports. And it kind of harkens back to some of what I found uh, in the 19th century in the way in which you know, foreign producers were calibrating production for very specific you know, regional markets in East Africa. Well, this is very much happening in Japan as well in the early 20th century. Um, and uh, after the Second World War II, I mean, in the, by the 1950s, uh, Japanese exports to the African continent actually far supersede 
the pre-war period. And so African markets, uh, not just East Africa, but the whole of the continent are becoming much more important to Japan's economy um, you know, by, by the early 1950s. So, and of course, finally, uh, I look at British policies to exclude Japanese goods, which I think is important to recognize were very unsuccessful um, initially, uh, really until um, until policymakers began to make very, very um, extreme choices in terms of alienating uh, politically Japan, you know, in the 1930s. So really, in addition to highlighting changing sartorial cultures, Japanese cotton goods, I think, offered this unique window on well, on the one hand, frictions between Eastern Africans and colonial administrators, because the fact that at the end of the day, what you know administrators are doing in East Africa is raising the price of this you know very important import commodity. I mean, that has all sorts of you know implications uh, for for the, the longer run. But I also look at these questions of friction between Britain and Japan that I just kind of hinted at. Um, particularly in these critical years prior to the Second World War, I, you know, I, I'm not trying to make too much of this, but one of the things that's really interesting in the in the in the um, debates within British policymaking circles is a desire not to alienate Japan in the early 1930s, but at the same time, the intense pressure internally to try to limit the import of Japanese goods in favor of. Um, of British goods, which, you know, again, is about sort of internal politics in the UK. So, but this ultimately plays out in terms of, you know, really significantly increased tensions around this question of, of, of markets for Japanese goods. Um, and that's true globally, but you can see it in a, in, in a microcosm very, very clearly in East Africa um, throughout the 1930s. So it's it's a broad project that is that uh, you know has entailed of course you know a lot of research in East Africa, uh, research in the UK, um, and research in Japan as well, which I haven't completed but is uh, is ongoing. And thankfully, there's a lot of material available for understanding both uh, you know how this production unfolded and what the relationship between uh, Japanese producers and East African consumers was. Um, but then, but again, you know, I, I still have a lot of work to do. Sounds like a wonderful project. And I've got so many questions, but I'm very conscious that I've taken a lot of your time. And I'm also conscious that there's ongoing research. So I'm willing to be patient. Um, so thank you very much, um, Professor Presto, um, for answering all these questions so generously. Uh, I also want to thank um, Sam Gleave-Riemann for organizing and producing this podcast. And of course, to you, the listener, for streaming or downloading. Uh, and once again, uh, just like to say my name is uh, Philip Gooding, uh, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership Appraising Risk Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal.